Hi, I'm Alan Silvestri, and I'm here talking with Kaya today, my old friend. And uh, we're going to talk about music and movies and Avengers and all those kinds of things. So I'm, I'm really looking forward uh, to our chat. Well, Alan, thank you so much for sitting down again. It's such a pleasure to, to chat again. Nice, nice to see you. Thank you. Good to see you. <laughs> so um, you, had a, you had a big night. You're here in L.A. today because uh, you were at the Avengers premiere last night. Right. So well, we'll, we'll talk about Avengers, but how was okay. that premiere? It was... <laughs> It was overwhelming, <laughs> like the film. Yeah. And uh, they did it at the convention center, so it was a lot of people under wow. one roof seeing the film together. And uh, it, was, it was amazing <laughs> and fun to finally see it you know, Finished front proper. to back. Yeah. I've seen all of it uh, many, many times and for so long, but to actually see it finished front to back is... Uh, it's pretty fantastic. And that must be a just a great culminating moment just after everything, the journey, yeah. the Marvel journey you've been on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, and for everyone who worked on it, I Absolutely. mean, it was such a tremendous effort from so many people for so long. Yeah. Uh, this film alone, uh, let alone the fact that it is this, uh, this kind of endgame culmination <laughs> yeah. of, of, uh, of 10 or 11 years of Marvel. Absolutely. So, yeah, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a fun night, for sure. Um, so before we dig into, into that a, li a little bit more, I kind of want to rewind back. And, and uh, I know we, we had a great interview a few years ago, and we talked about your background and, and uh, kind of your path to becoming a composer. But I wanted, I wanted to go back and talk about, do you remember like any kind of defining moments in your youth that kind of you felt triggered your love for film or your love for music and kind of guided you towards, towards that? Well, music had been um, uh, very important to me um, for a long time. And especially when I was in the junior high school years, mm. which would have been uh, when I was 13 years old, 12, 13, 14, 15, that whole area, um, which would have been 19... 70, no, 1963, for mm. instance, I was 13. I started to play in bands and, and I was a drummer, a guitar player, um, and started to become interested in writing, uh, but never from the point of view of writing music for film. Mm. Uh, it, it was something that was kind of not even a possibility. I didn't I didn't know anyone in the film industry. I lived in Teaneck, New Jersey at the time. <laughs> and, um, and the film thing happened uh, much, much later. I went through high school, continued to write and play, went to Berkeley in Boston and continued to write and play. My interest was always jazz um, yeah. and writing in the big band idiom. That was what I loved. And the film thing is, as um, it seems many people know, was kind of an accident. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and one thing led to another and wound up having a chance to do a film and that worked. And so <laughs> then there was another one and then another one and it's kind of been pieced together like that for over 45 years now, <laughs> I think.
Does it feel like a blur? Does it do you, does it feel like it happened so fast, or does it feel like a long time of just kind of being in this yeah, industry? Yeah, it's both. I mean, it's 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 both. Yeah, it feels very um, very linear in a sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's you're starting out, you get this opportunity to do something, and so that happens. But what does that mean? Right. You know, was it an accident? Well, yeah, I'm sure <laughs> it was clearly an accident, um, but then it worked, and then a second opportunity or, appears, and it's like, okay, you know, maybe there's something, maybe there's a path here yeah. that I haven't quite recognized yet. And it's interesting, over um, a lot of years in the beginning, I had done a couple of low-budget films. I had done four years of the Chips show. Yeah, yeah. And then that stopped abruptly. And so now um, I've been doing this, and that must have been, I must have been in my early 30s. And I think I had done my film in 1971 or so. Wow. So I've been around this, doing this now yeah. for 10 years. but. I remember feeling very clearly, maybe this has all been a mistake, <laughs> um, even after four years of a successful show, and not being able to get arrested, as they say, <laughs> and thinking, wow, this whole thing may have just been a little blip in my life, and I got to yeah. look in on it, and, and it's passed me by. and. And then, you know, the next thing you know, this phone call comes out of the clear blue sky and there's a man on the other side of the phone named Robert Zemeckis. <laughs> and it's like, here we go again. <laughs> and, and there have been times, even after that, where, you know, you go through a dry spell and you sit there and you go, my God, has this all been yeah, just, am I, finished now has mm. it left me and, and you know because of styles changing in the industry and and things like that and so it's interesting now having having done this for 45 years or whatever it is I don't somehow um, assume that it's been anything but a blip yeah <laughs> I, I really don't I'm I'm kind of ready for it to stop and and if it doesn't, that's okay too. <laughs> and it's interesting. I mean, it, it might just be part of the temperament yeah. of someone who does this job or a job like this, some kind of writer or, you know, you, you truly don't know where what you do comes from in you. Yeah. And so there, there is, uh, along with that, this kind of, always this kind of a sense of anxiety it's like eh, i know i've done it a lot before but that doesn't mean i can do it again and it's a very interesting thing i've never gotten over that i love getting called to do a film yeah. and then there's that moment where oh, what am i going to do <laughs> how where am i going to start how right. am i going to find the notes because that's ultimately what it is, you have to find the notes. Right. And I talked with the other composers, and, and it's funny you mentioned that. Just so I'm guessing that you still have doubt, self-doubt, before every project. Is, 
but you also do need, I guess, a sense of confidence to do the job that you do. You do. Um, where does that confidence come from? Well, I think a great um, part of it now comes through the benefit of history mm. and experience. In the beginning, it comes from youth and brashness. <laughs> <laughs> but now, um, now, you know, when my self divides <laughs> and the dark side is there whining and complaining about how we can't do this, it's, it's difficult to allow it to go on too long without saying, you know, you need to stop. Yeah. We've only done this 140 <laughs> times before, you know, and every time you show up and every time I have to have this talk with you and we find a way. Mm -hmm. um, and so that maybe could be interpreted as confidence. Yeah. Um, it certainly helps kind of move through the anxiety and the, uh, and the, the self-esteem yeah. <laughs> um, problems, right. and, but, it's, but it's always there for me. I, I've thought about it so many times. How do I just skip that part? And, um, and I've never found a way to skip it. I have to go through this whole emotional curve every time yeah. to get to this thing at the end of a project that actually feels like it knows what it's doing right. and what to do. Um, but it's very interesting too because it is a relationship effort mm -hmm. and um, there's no shortcutting the getting to know you part of the, of the relationship yeah. with your directors, for instance. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you've, you've been, you know, doing this for, you mentioned, you know, for 40 plus years and 140 films. Um, being a veteran in the industry, and you, you mentioned earlier, like, oh, you're ready for it to stop or keep going. Is it, is it, is it, diff is it, I guess, what is the experience of being a veteran in the industry versus, you know, for, say, a newcomer who comes in who's 20 years old and getting their start is, do you feel more, you know, just comfortable being like, okay, I've done this before, I'm going to get the calls, but you said you're ready for it to stop at any time. Do you fear that? Is that something that you fear? Like, if it was... I go. wouldn't say I fear it, um, but once the calls have stopped for a while, if you ask me that again, <laughs> you may get a completely different response. Um, it's very interesting what you say about... Um, about younger composers uh, because the the landscape has changed tremendously mm. since when I started and one of the one of the big changes I think is um, when I got my start which was in the early 70s there were very few film composers um, and, and I would say very few film composers consistently composing and, and what I would call making a living doing mm -hmm. it. Yeah. They were the same folks on the posters every weekend in, the, in the, you know, the entertainment section of the LA Times. And so the thought of breaking in 
to that group was terrifying. It was daunting. Mm. And, and you really didn't know how that could ever happen. What I'm seeing now <clears throat> is that um, the, the field of opportunity for younger composers is far, far greater mm. than what was there when I was starting out. But my sense is it, it hasn't helped the problem of how do you do this? How do yeah. you break in? Because with this extended field of opportunity uh, come all of these amazingly gifted young composers who have learned so much about film composing. They've gone to these great schools where the technical side of film composing is, is completely mastered by them. Um, they've studied film scoring, they've studied film. Um, so they have a completely different reason for why it's going to be so difficult than I had. Yeah. But it's still going to be so difficult. And the one thing I, I, I kind of think about is, you know, a few years back I was asked by David Newman to do a concert with the AYS. Yeah. And, um, I went and did this and I was standing in this dressing room and I don't do a lot of these things and we were doing all of these things that had come from my career, Forrest Gump, Back to the Future, all these kinds of things. And I remember thinking how many young composers who today did their first film score will have an opportunity in 20 years or 30 years to have a body of work where they can walk out on a stage and, and uh, give a concert of their work. How, how are they going to navigate this tremendous field of talent that's out there? And I, I don't know the answer to that. I, you know, we do see young people come and rise to this a place now where they are consistently working, so it's happening. Yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging because technology has made it more accessible to people who right. you don't need a lot of money and, and right. to, to get the gear and kind of work, but it also, because it's more accessible, the competition is insane. Right. Everybody has so the gear. Everyone has the gear, everyone yeah. is doing it, so yeah, it's yeah. this double-edged, you have yeah. more opportunities now, but it's more competitive. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly, so interesting. I don't think it's any more or less difficult than it was 40 plus mm. years ago. It's just a different form of difficulty. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of still kind of staying in this er, these early years of your career, um, I always like to talk to people about um, the mistakes they make, the failures they have, because that, that, that's how you learn, that's how you grow, and I think people are very scared to talk about those, but right. it's, you know, you're vulnerable. And, right. But do you, were there any kind of like moments of, like a, a lesson that you learned early in your career, like you made a mistake or maybe you did something that you really learned and kind of created a foundation for yourself. Is there any kind of lessons that you learned that you kind of still hold today? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are many of them. I yeah. have, I, I have um, one in particular that I think you might enjoy. <laughs> um, I, I had just gotten a three-episode commitment um, to do Chips, and this was the beginning of their second season. 
And we did, I did the first episode of the second season. And I redid their main title. Um, and it had more of a, for its time, more of what would be called a contemporary sound. This is contemporary for 1978. <laughs> um, and the show worked, the opening of their second season, ratings were great. So I was hired, you know, no contract, right. but it was a three episode commitment, which was incredible. I, I took that as a steady job in show business. <laughs> so to, to answer your question, one of those early episodes was a, an episode where, where Punch, um, they're doing basically their Saturday Night Fever episode where Punch comes into the club and he's dressed in his John Travolta suit and he comes and he dances and it's, it's right out of the movie. So I spent time doing this track for it. And I worked on it and worked on it. I mean, you had a week to do these things. Yeah, the yeah. whole score, the score, the whole show. So, right. but um, I worked hard on this thing, and I remember going out on the stand, and and Cy Shermack was the producer of the uh, of the show, and he had been brought in um, to do this that second season and on, and he was a very experienced kind of, um, you know experienced and I would almost say stern kind of man very fair but very direct and um, you know just a little scary for a for a, a, a new person yeah so anyway I go out there and do this um, this cue for Ponch's dance so I'm working really hard on this cue I go out there they play it great and I'm expecting now to just walk into the control room and, and have Mr. Shermack, you know, just be smiling and patting me on the back and all of this. <laughs> and when I turn around and start walking, this was out at MGM, um, which is now Sony, it's almost as though I could see frost from the <laughs> inside of the control room. And it started to feel a little strange as I'm walking to the control room. And I don't know if you're aware of that studio, but the entrance door, it's almost like a meat locker. Yeah, that's it's like this <laughs> big thing. So I go in, and Mr. Shermack used to wear a, a black cowboy hat, kind of like a Clint Eastwood hat, you know, with a straight brim. And he's sitting at the console like this with his head down. <laughs> and there's a chair next to him where I always sit for the playback of the cue. I sit down with him and he's dead silent and not moving. So already this is not the reaction I'm expecting, right? right? <laughs> so there's, there's some very kind of painful moments of silence. And then he begins to speak, but he doesn't look at me. He's just looking straight ahead. And he said, you know, my job here is to try to make this show as good as we can make it. And, uh, 
And the primary aspect of that job is to take care of my talent. I have these stars and it's really up to me to have them look as good as they possibly can, sound as good as they possibly can, because that's what's important for the show. He said, so I need you to understand that this is not the Alan Silvestri hour. <laughs> and like this is, you know, in the room full of folks, you know, assistants, engineers, everybody there. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It's like I had lost my mind. Wow. I had completely forgotten what my place, I like to say, what my place in the food chain was. Mm -hmm. And I was just some idiot out there thinking that this somehow was about my music. Mm. And it was such a shocking uh, comeuppance for me that I've never forgotten it. And that part of myself is something I have had to learn about mm. over my entire career. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, I have had to grow up and mature and thankfully there have been people who have stood by me through this difficult, painful process. The, the most, you know, important person being Robert Zemeckis. Mm. I mean, I really feel like he, he mentored me through this painful growing up process. Um, and now I, I can say that, or I'd like to say that I've grown up a bit. Yeah. And uh, I understand much more clearly what I'm being asked to do and what my place in all of it is. And, uh, and it's different. And, and it's been very helpful for me and for the directors I work for um, because I'm, I'm not that adolescent idiot. Yeah. <laughs> not in the same way. Um, and it makes for a much more immediate collaborative um, experience for all of us trying to make the film great, yeah. not trying to make ourselves great. Right, right. Oh, yeah, so you're, yeah, you mentioned Robert Zemeckis as being kind of this uh, prominent figure, of course, in your career. And I mean, you're still working together. Uh, still, I mean, welcome uh, to Marwin was just the most recent collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, what's the difference between working, and I think a part of a composer's job is to when you start working with a director, getting to know them, figuring mm -hmm. out their personality. Mm -hmm. um, what's the difference working with Robert now versus starting a new, a new collaborative, collaborative relationship with a new director? Is there a difference working with somebody brand new versus with Robert for how many films you've oh, done? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And it's as simple as, you know, thinking in terms of any kind of relationship you might have, mm -hmm. whether it's a, a, a couple, a, two people living together, or um, someone on a team, a sports figure mm -hmm. who um, works on a team, an orchestra member 
in terms of how um, it is to play with colleagues yeah. for a period of time and kind of know how, how your colleagues, your teammates move, perform, their timing, their sensibilities. So yeah, it's very different. And um, I know Bob likes to think of it in terms of a shorthand mm -hmm. um, that has developed. There is certainly that. Um, there's certainly a kind of trust yeah. um, that allows for a kind of vulnerability, that allows for a kind of directness. Um, you know, it's, it's people who are performers, and that is the director, the actors, um, the composer, the players, um, they, they have at, at the same time thick skins and thin skins <laughs> and they have a very kind of emotional side and yeah. sometimes volatively so. Um, it's part of where the fire of their performance comes from but it's, it's also a little dangerous <laughs> at some time. Yeah. And so Criticism is always um, an interesting event. And with Bob and I, um, I think we love each other so much and have been together so long that we can really talk about the film um, and not be worrying about our feelings. Mm. And that doesn't mean, I mean, everything Bob has ever said to me in terms of a criticism has been with the utmost respect. Um, but it, it's, it's just even better now because um, we just get right to it. Yeah. And, uh, and we don't waste any time about things. And, and uh, so it's, a, it's an amazing thing and very treasured for me yeah. because, you know, that takes a lot of time to develop and most folks, I would say many folks never have the opportunity to experience that kind of long-term relationship in this business. Mm -hmm. And then certainly one this long, is uh, it's a rare thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned that kind of vulnerability that you're able to have with somebody like that. But I think just the, in general, the, the art form of writing music or telling stories where you know screenwriter director you have to be vulnerable with your emotions and is is your writing process do you like when you have to hone in on a if you need to make this scene somebody cry do you hone in on on your kind of deeper inner emotions do you look at your own life and I, i've talked to some composers who say oh it's not not autobiographical i never go back to like a sad moment in my life to pull that emotion out. i just know how to craft it for the scene or do you know, I don't know, maybe I'm doing a poor job of asking the no, question. No, 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 you're not. I think, I think I know what you're speaking about. Um, I have a slightly different sense mm -hmm. um, of it. Um, but I'm agreeing with what you're saying. <laughs> um, what I, and I've looked at this now a little more directly over the past few years. What I find I have to do is not go back into my past. Mm -hmm. I have to go back into the character's past. Okay, yeah. And 
that means I have to, in a sense, become an actor. And I have to live that scene. And I've never acted, but I've, I've gained a tremendous respect for actors as I've started to realize what my process really is, mm -hmm. and, and it's the only way for me it can work, and it's yeah. always the way I've done it, but I've never really thought about it. It's got to be the same as when an actor prepares their, you know, they learn their lines yeah. or not, mm -hmm. but they go on to a set and they have to go somewhere innerly yeah. right. and emotionally to do what they have to do. And there's no other way to do it. Um, so the idea of crafting it is not, it, 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 there's a, for me, there's a kind of a negative cast to that mm. because it's like saying, well, I know when I do this and this and this, people cry. It's not really yeah. like that, although there is something about a vocabulary musically right. that can express uh, emotion, but that doesn't account for um, the sense of timing, for instance. Yeah. You know, an emotion uh, as it moves in a scene, uh, and, and for music to be part of that scene, there has to be a synchronicity. I mean, you have to be with that performance. And if you're willfully ahead of it, crafting something or crafting it late, it's not going to feel right. And if it doesn't feel right, it's not going to work. So it really is a question of going into that character's performance right there and working through that performance. Now, I do know if I don't have tears in my eyes in a scene where that is what we're looking for as a response to the telling of the story right there, if I don't feel that and have that, yeah. no one else will. Right. So I then am the barometer of, of when I've achieved that or not, or whether I've achieved that or not. And I trust that. Mm. I've, I've seen it enough times now. And I also know that until that happens, it's not there. Right. And so that's interesting too. So you know you're not finished until that happens. I'm not finished until that happens. Whatever that is, mm -hmm. whether it's a moment of joy, a moment of exuberance, a, a tears, mm. whatever it is, that's when I know I'm uh, finished is when I'm feeling that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From what I've done, which is no surprise to me. I mean, I, I know what the notes are and I yeah. here they come and and I get that emotional response myself and that's how that works for me. So it's interesting too. I never understood why I could sit in a room for eight hours or sometimes ten hours and then be exhausted. And it's not because, you know, I've been working out somehow physically, I've been on a soundstage as an actor yeah. um, all that time, having to go to that place, go to that place, 
and live through that emotional arc and it's tiring just as I would imagine an, an actor doing a very emotional scene would be yeah. spent at the end of their day um, it's fascinating it's yes yeah, I mean um, emotional emotions drain you I mean it's also you look at a kind of introverted people which I'm a little bit of an introvert my wife's and when you are out there just with yeah. people in the world it drains you absolutely yeah, so. it all requires energy mm -hmm. um, you yeah, have to sure. show up <laughs> on the inside for the conditions. And uh, if it's not a natural response for you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost you. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think you've become a, uh, a better storyteller uh, as you've kind of uh, lived, lived your life? Uh, I mean, are there certain points in your like, life that kind of change your perspective, whether it's when you became a husband, became a father, a grandfather, that changes you? Does it, did it change your way of looking at the world and making you a better storyteller, do you think? Uh, I think absolutely. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, in the end, you, um, you need a vocabulary. Um, just as, as a writer of words would need a vocabulary, um, you need that, which is um, coming from your time studying music and mm -hmm. being with music but then for storytelling you need a story vocabulary and you need an emotional vocabulary so perfect example for me was um, I had a two-year-old son um, I still have him <laughs> but it was touch and go when he was two he was diagnosed with um, type 1 juvenile diabetes oh, wow. we we were literally minutes away from losing him and lived through that experience. Yeah. He's great now it's amazing. and it's, it's yeah. amazing and it's all great. But shortly thereafter, I was working on Forrest Gump. Wow. And when I was working on the scene where young Forrest is running with his braces, <laughs> Uh, and then through, and this is a kid now who thought he was broken. Yeah. And had all of this hardware to shore him up. And the magic of that scene for me was that he discovered, as the hardware started to fall off, he had this moment of recognition where yeah. he looks down and... He's cured. Not only is he not broken, but he's gifted. Yeah. Um, I felt my son's um, path in, in this. It, it wasn't, again, like I was channeling anything directly. Right. right. But I had now had the opportunity to... to live through something yeah and we have not still had the moment where the hardware falls off and the recognition comes and it's been 22 or 23 years um, but to see it on young Forrest's face and know that we might as a family experience that someday is is still very powerful for us and yes, yeah. and 
part of what keeps us hopeful in our work um, for the cure, fundraising, and all the rest of it. So absolutely everything in your life, you know, mm -hmm. if you have a love life that goes uh, uh, wrong, a broken heart, um, a broken heart, any kind of loss, tragedy, yeah. and any kind of success, any kind of, you know, sense of triumph. All of this stuff is now part of your emotional fabric. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's in there, and it's part of your voice now going forward. It's just how it is. Yeah. I mean, it's also why I love, why I fell in love with movies. It's just kind of this... When I was young, I didn't. I either wanted to get into. I was in love with the animals and stuff. You know, right. I wanted to do marine biology or something. But I fell in love with filmmaking because it was the only thing that made sense to me. Yeah, it was yeah, like the, yeah. the only thing that made sense about what my emotions were at the time growing up, and it made sense of the world, and then examining other people and learning about other people's stories. I right. don't know. That's what right. I love about the whole form. Yeah, it's magnificent. <laughs> um, so I, w I wanted to jump into and maybe talk some uh, about some of. We, we did we did hit some of your uh, your projects in our last interview, but I think what I really love about your music is your your themes, and mm -hmm. I think your themes are so beautiful, and they anchor the films that you work on. And I was wondering if I could just rally, you know, just kind of toss out some some film titles, and you can maybe talk about how that theme came to be, or maybe the sure. backstory of the theme. Sure. So let's start with a really iconic one, which is Predator, mm -hmm. which is <laughs> mm -hmm. it's such a testosterone masculine thing. Right. Uh, so. Where did that theme come from, I guess, for that film, for, within you? <laughs> well, it was, um, you know, there were, there were many aspects thematically to Predator. Yeah. A lot of it was um, kind of sonic tone and all that, but the, the main title theme is clearly a theme. <laughs> um, it has a very martial aspect to it, yeah. Um, because these were military guys. Um, it has a, a a very kind of what we ha have associated um, with masculine, yeah, um, yeah. Um, which um, does not exclude women, but but in terms of. I think what that kind of pounding yeah. <laughs> um, uh, sensibility was, um, you know, we've got Arnold Schwarzenegger looking magnificent. Um, we've got, it, this is about power and it's ultimately about, you know, it's a cage fight yeah, yeah. between two dudes <laughs> is really where it heads, Yeah, <laughs> you know? And so um, that's what the essence of that film was about. And, and so I kind of looked for something, you know, this dum, bum, ba, ba, bum. <laughs> it's like bum, ba, ba, bum, ba, bum. Yeah, yeah. Ba -ba -ba -bum. <laughs> <laughs> and then beautiful strings, <laughs> you know, it had to be dramatic, it had to have a sense of heroism, Yeah. <coughs> but it 
had to be hitting. I do a lot of hitting with big <laughs> hammers. It had to have that, yeah. or it just wouldn't have stood up to, you know, I mean, Arnold's leading the way here. If he, you gotta try to hit as hard as you know he's gonna hit. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of how, you know, um, call it thought process, right. but it's as much feel. It's yeah. like, wow, this guy, this guy, we have to hit hard. <laughs> he will, so we have to. And that theme has, I mean, it's, it's endured. It's so amazing. Yeah, it's been great. It's you know, like, that, did, you, did you get a chance to listen to what Henry did with your theme? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. He's, he's fantastic. <laughs> no, and he, we had a great chat, too, about it all, which was, you know, purely a courtesy that he, he gave me. He yeah. didn't have to talk to me, but, <laughs> but uh, we just had a great, uh, a great chat just as to two guys who are trying to do this job, right. you know? <laughs> I had only met Henry once before. I met him at a, at a little discussion group we did years ago. And so it's, I really haven't had a chance to spend time with him. But yeah. the two times I have, he's just fantastic. Oh, I he's, mean, he's, he's a blast just, to chat yeah, with. He's the, be he's the best. So. <laughs> um, so moving to another theme, uh, of course, is Back to the Future. It's such an iconic theme. Mm -hmm. And that has also endured. Um, so... And that was a, a Bob Zemeckis film. So talk about where that theme came from, kind of encompassing that adventure, that kind of that that kind of lift kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, that was an interesting film um, for many, many reasons. Um, musically, one of the uh, interesting things about Back to the Future was that Bob in the making of that film didn't have a lot of expansive scopey shots mm. oh none basically everything was close everything you know the the whole clock tower event was in you know it was on a set in in the center of a small town yeah um, where where were the big shots there were none. That's right, yeah. So it was all very close kind of work. And yet, um, it's about great heroism, great friendship, great love, great adventure, but no, no real visual right. um, panoramas, yeah, certainly. Yeah. You know, to give you that big <laughs> desert shot, you know, looking off into infinity. None of that. So when I first met Bob, I met him while he was shooting the Enchantment Under the Sea Dance at, at uh, a church on Franklin Avenue in, in Hollywood. And he was in the midst of a lot. Um, it was probably his biggest setup day in the making of the film. And so we're talking in the cracks and he finally turns to me at one point and he goes it's got to be big al <laughs> and he's doing this with his hands like over his head and he's talking to everybody because he's directing 150 <laughs> people probably yeah. but it's then he'd come big <laughs> so i walked out with that <laughs> kind of burned into the e-prom yeah <laughs> it's got to be big it's got to be big so I went back, and it's a big story. It Again, is, yeah. like I you know, was saying, 
high adventure, great love, great friendship. And that came out very quickly. I knew I needed something heroic. Um, I knew it had to be able to be played big. Um, I, I very often think in terms of a simple song. Because you have to have that hook, right? There has to be... Well, you have to have, very often, like a song. You have to have a verse and mm -hmm. a chorus. Yeah. You have to have... Um, you have to have a place where you tell the story and then you have to have a place where you celebrate <laughs> the story. Yeah. And so, you know, back to the future, um, it's a very simple song form. It's an A-A-B-A -A -A song. Right. You know, it's verse, verse, chorus, and, and you're there. You know, <laughs> bing, bong, bong. Change key, same thing. Great, but that's not where we raise our fist. We do it when, right? So, so it's a real simple concept, and it's a simple song form. And, and so, you know, the difference between songwriting and composing, film composing, I would say, is that the songwriting is the songwriting, and there it is. It's, it's a melody line and chords, literally. Yeah. But now, how do you take every, every bit of that is now some valuable asset in the scoring process of the film. Yeah. So uh, if we're looking at something mysterious and we go bing, bong, 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 it's the first bar of the theme, yeah. but it's now starting to travel score-wise through the movie. Right, right. Um, you know, when, when George picks Lorraine up and we use that little bit of the B section, we're playing it beautifully with strings, very slowly. It's not a, it's not a big, brassy, heroic treatment of the theme. It's really soft and the strings are carrying the weight of that, but it's like part of our fabric now. And so all the pieces of that, that uh, theme, more so probably than just about any other film I've done, they're just embedded all through that film. Yeah. And, uh, and they're always there kind of subliminally helping us to keep, you know, us in the moment yeah, yeah. of Back to the Future. Absolutely. Um, another personal favorite of mine is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, <clears throat> which I love, and I was actually listening on the way over here. But um, uh, talk about, there, there's a lot of motifs in, in there, but um, talk about coming up with, yeah, that, that kind of central uh, theme, and then the, just the whole, it's a very, it kind of touches on your roots, jazzy kind of stuff. Right. Kind of film noir, but it's, it was a very 
interesting right. project. I mean, I, what's the comparative modern day version of that? Just having two Warner Brothers and Disney and creating a kind of more adult oriented. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was a, an amazing effort by Mr. Zemeckis, most certainly. Yeah. Um, um, well, look, so first of all, we had the, the, the out and out cartoon aspect yeah. of it. Um, and, you know, the start of that for me was the maroon cartoon. Yeah. And, you know, the challenge of the maroon cartoon was um, my understanding of the, the, um, the great days of, of writing for the great cartoons was that they were very often created with storyboards um, and a composer came in and wrote and then the animators would actually animate to the score. That's where you get that very in tune with the music. Yes, You're scoring yes. motion and action. Right. Yeah. A lot of what they call in the business Mickey Mousing. Mickey Mousing, yeah. Right. Um, but that was not going to be the case here. Um, they were going to make this cartoon, then I was going to have to attempt to make it look like the cartoon was drawn to the score. Wow. So it was very challenging. It, it was a piece in and of itself. It was like four minutes long. Yeah. It took us a full day to record it. Wow. And it was a nightmare for the orchestra. They were magnificent. Um, but the, the click guides, the, the, the logistics, the mechanics of getting that done were horrific for the orchestra. <laughs> it was the imagine. London Symphony Orchestra. Wow. They were so great to me, such great sports. Um, but I do remember a story where we broke for lunch and... Um, the magnificent trumpet player Jerry Hay was traveling with me. Um, we, we brought a, a jazz ensemble with us. And uh, he came out of the, the restroom on the lunch break and he said, Hey, Al. Uh, so I just saw something really interesting. I said, Yeah, Jerry, what's that? He said, The concert master went into the men's room, filled up a sink with water, and stuck his head in it. And I thought, I thought, oh my God, I feel terrible. Oh, that's amazing. I said, but I don't blame them. I would too. What they had to do was just, you know, I mean, they've, yeah. they play the greatest music ever written and they play. And for them to have to like do this <laughs> must have been excruciating, but they did it. And I think it looks like they drew the cartoon to yeah. what those people played. Absolutely. So that was the mission. A, you know, it's one of these unfortunate situations where none of that carried forward into the film. Right. None of that stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it was just the nature of it. So, so then thematically, when we, we start to move into the body of the film, I'm kind of looking at this as, you know, what, what are we, you know... Uh, what are we going to do? Mm. Um, Eddie Valiant, well, Eddie wound up getting his own theme. And it was kind of this 40s noir kind of yeah. motif. Um, then the Weasels 
Well, okay. So when I think of weasels, I start, you know, I start doing this. Yeah. And now, next thing I know, it's da 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 you know, it's like, you know, not unlike Doc in Back to the Future. Yeah. You know, the the Doc motif in Back to the Future for me was always what's going on in the synapses in Doc's brain. Yeah, just like firing. It's like, he's like this, you know, it's like you can see everything's misfiring and all this. So very physically driven, you know. So so working through, you know, Roger, um, it was very much like that, you know. Judge Doom, he had this, you know, kind of slow, ominous mm. motif. Um, and then we had such amazing players. Um, you know, we had Tom Scott, Jerry Hay, Chuck DeMonico, Randy Waldman, <clears throat> Harvey Mason. So when we could do these free jazz feeling things, yeah. we had the ultimate folks who could really do that. Wow. And it, it's breathtaking what they all played. Jessica, I mean, you know, she had what one would expect, you yeah. know, <laughs> bum, 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 bum. It's definitely, it's like, you know, uh, Tom Scott played her theme, yeah. and it was this. It's just vampy. I love it. You know, it's she's a stripper. Yeah. You know, who never you know pays off. Right. But it's purely sensual and sexual what she's delivering. Yeah. So it's you know, I played her like uh, <coughs> like a stripper. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, she was drawn it, that way. Yeah, she was drawn that way. <laughs> it wasn't my fault. It wasn't your fault. She was drawn that way. So, you know, again, I'm just following Bob's lead. What's, you know, what it seems to need. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, you can't, you, you know, you can't go too far wrong if you follow what your directors are trying to do. Yeah. I was, um, there's one scene in that film that I love so much. And it's, you know, when you've mentioned Roger Rabbit, nobody ever mentions this scene, really. It's not like uh -huh. a... But it's the scene um, when Eddie is looking through his old photos and right. sees the, the photos of his brother. Right. And the way, like, Bob structured that scene, the way you scored it, it's, it's just like, it reminds me how... And this is kind of... It all tied together. I was filming for uh, this uh, event for the Orville, where Seth MacFarlane was there yeah. and he had yeah. all his composers. And he was talking about how directors today don't leave room for music... Right. And he was quoting that scene from Star Wars, of course, looking at the two sons and how John's music comes in. Right. And the fact that you were able to do that with Roger Rabbit in a similar fashion, get all this information with no dialogue. We right. knew exactly right. when that music turns and he sees his brother and right. he's going, and he's, you feel the, the hole, the emptiness, and you get it. You don't have to have him sit in a scene going, oh, I miss my brother, and right. you know, no, no exposition needed. Right, And I right. thought that was such a beautiful scene yeah yeah it was and 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 clearly bob made room yeah he knew um because yeah without music that scene is so dry and it has a, no it's context a, it's a tracking shot yeah but he um you know would he have shot it that way 
if that was our first movie, I don't know. Mm, yeah. Um, by, but by now, we had done some things together and, um, you know, he may have felt like, I, I don't know what Al's going to do, but he's going to have to figure this out because <laughs> this is how I'm going to shoot this. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so you do have to leave room and it's yeah. not, I'm sure it's not always easy. I know in the run forest run scene, you look at that scene without any music and you know, that filmmaker has to really know what they're doing and have confidence that when the rest of the pieces arrive, yeah. and one of them being music, that this is all going to make sense. Because right. Otherwise, it's just long shots of someone running in a field. Yeah, and <laughs> how's that going to how's that going to work? Yeah. So you were mentioning Forrest Gump, which is of course another film which has amazing thematic material all through it. So you mentioned the run, forest, run mm -hmm. scene. And I know the last time we talked, you talked about the feather. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but that, that film is, there's a lot going on in the movie just with music as well, because you're sharing space with all these iconic songs. Right. Was that, but then you have those moments which you talk about, which we remember. And I feel like your score did shine through it. Was that difficult to kind of spot that thing? Like, or? <laughs> you know, it, it, it was not difficult yeah. at all to spot that. Okay. What was difficult was to think about spotting it and to wonder how we were going to spot it. Mm. Um, I remember in the weeks leading up to when we did spot it, I remember getting a call from Bob and in one call he said, you know Al, I've been looking at this and I think there's going to be a ton of score in this movie. Like, okay, okay. <laughs> and then literally a week later, Al, you know, I've been thinking about our last chat and I I'm not sure there's going to be any score in this movie. <laughs> and it's like, okay, okay. Um, and so we know now we have all of these songs. They're in there. They're placed for the most part. And so the day approaches, you know, what on earth are we going to do? And I remember... Bob and I sat there, and it was so clear yeah. what it needed and what was score, what the songs were doing. And, you know, we went back um, <clears throat> after the fact, um, I did certainly, to think about why was it that easy <laughs> when there was so much apprehension about it going in. And the the songs had this amazing ability to um, remind us uh, of where we were when we heard these songs. Yeah. And so what what he did so brilliantly with them was he put everybody back into that time through the use of those songs. Absolutely. And it was uncanny how that happened but all the emotional trajectories of the characters were score yeah and they should have been and the two areas had no conflict because although it was music um they were functioning in completely different ways in the movie yeah 
And so it was crystal clear where score should be and where the song should be. And, and it was one of the easier spotting sessions oh, that's because of that. <laughs> yeah, they never step on each other's toes. No. Yeah. It's... No reason. They're, they're like completely different aspects of, you know, yes, they're both called music, but yeah, they're not the same so different. functionally. Yeah. yeah. I'm always curious to see, like, I mean, I didn't grow up in that time period either. I'm only 32. Um, but uh, if you showed like a, maybe a 13 year old, if that would have the same effect of you, you know, hearing yeah. those songs, would it, would it have the same effect of placing them in that time? Hopefully, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, it wouldn't do it like it would for someone who was in their youth yeah. when those songs uh, were there, like me. Mm -hmm. um, but the songs are, you know, it's interesting. My son is now 29 and, you know, I'll get in the car with him. Next thing I know, he's put on a Cat Stevens song or he's put on a, a Beatles song or, or whatever. Well. <laughs> yeah, so he's, so, you know, the these younger generation folks, yeah. you know, there's that whole thing that this is current music for them. Right. And the other thing is that sonically, so many of those um, songs, even if they're not recognized by titles and all for a younger audience, they still have this quality yeah. that works with the clothes we're seeing yeah. <laughs> and the cars we're seeing. And it's like, I don't know, that's music of, you know, of its time. Like if we saw a 40s scene in a movie um, and we hear Frank, yeah. it's like, I, I never saw a Frank Sinatra concert and I wasn't alive in 1946 or whatever, but I'm, I'm totally there. Oh, yeah, I was yeah. like, that is the music of right there, what I'm, you know, what I'm watching and I'm completely there with it. So, Absolutely. So I think it works like that yeah. in, in Forest also. For sure. Um, jumping, skipping ahead a little bit to more recent, we're getting, I want to, we're getting to Avengers, um, but Ready Player One, I mm -hmm. thought was such fantastic like I don't know I was so happy during that movie that's it, great it just felt like your style from like all your older films too yeah, but yeah. just with Spielberg's kind of sentimental touch um, yeah. what was like what was I mean first of all it was big news because John wasn't scoring it right so how did that uh, I mean I'm sure you've crossed paths with Spielberg in the past of course back to the future right right so was it a did, how did that come up did he come to you be like hey I need John's juggling this can you do this <laughs> like, it it um it came across. Um, it came to me in a in a a very amazing way, mm -hmm. um, and in the best sense of an amazing way. Um, everybody knows the relationship between Steven Spielberg and John Williams. Yeah, and. Um, that is the most iconic relationship. And so um, that relationship is cared for most beautifully. And so for Mr. Spielberg, for any reason to step outside of that is, is going to be cared for beautifully yeah um and so i i 
heard that this was something that was going to happen. Yeah. And it was quite amazing. And, and I, I knew why it was happening, and it really was only about this impossible schedule for Mr. Williams. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the forces were such that Mr. Spielberg had to do something. Um, otherwise, he would not have had to go outside of that relationship. And so it was, um, it was, you know, it was amazing to even think I would be considered for that. It was amazing to finally get that call from Mr. Spielberg. Um, I have known Stephen for all these years, but yeah. always as a producer, right? Which yeah. is a completely different relationship, for sure. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, and so it was. It was amazing, and um, everything about it was amazing, and the way Mr. Williams was with me was amazing. Um, yeah, the whole thing was, uh, and you know, of course, you've got all of that history of Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis, and that's amazing. Yeah. And it really did feel like, um, you know, people use this word, this word family, in, in, in a lot of ways, sometimes I think a bit too casually. Mm -hmm. But this really did have a sense of, I mean, everyone was involved in this happening. Yeah. Robert Zemeckis, Mr. Williams, Mr. Spielberg. This wasn't just like somebody picking up a phone and making a phone call. <laughs> it, it all was kind of beautifully um, uh, presented. And it was amazing oh, yeah. to have a chance to, to, to do it. It's such a great, just just a great, fun film, and yeah, just yeah, yeah. The, the source material is fantastic, and yeah, and, and then on top of it, um, Steven Spielberg is is creating this su such a lovely homage to his friend, yeah, who I happen to have worked with on that film. Yeah, you got you to know? you got to quote yourself. Yeah, yeah. and and <laughs> you know Steven wanted that. He didn't want it like that. Yeah, he, you know he that was part of the fun for him. <laughs> you know, was to bring all of these nostalgic images of that time period, records, visual things, um, to bring them uh, into this one collection, uh, in, uh, you know, under the roof of one film, yeah. as it were. He had the greatest time with that. Oh my God. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and who else to do it? You know, he, he loves it all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so it was, it was an amazing experience. That's fantastic. So uh, coming up to what we're here kind of also to talk about, of course, Avengers, mm -hmm. another fantastic theme that I love. And, uh, and you were just showing me before we started a little clip that Kevin Feige was talking about that iconic moment mm -hmm. from the first Avengers. Mm -hmm. um, so in the Marvel universe is we're like twenty two films deep now. I think 20, so. Twenty one, yeah. twenty two, and that's a lot of music in those movies. So when it came time to bring them together for the first time, that must have been 
daunting because I feel like having an ensemble cast, they've all had their own separate event adventures. You scored, of course, Captain America, right. the first Avenger, and other characters had separate musical identities coming together, but you had to create this kind of solid, single, singular entity of all of them together, right? Right, right. So where did, yeah, the theme, it's, when I use the term simple, I don't mean it as in a very... No, but, it's, but it's it a is simple, a good term. Yeah, I love, I guess simple, I think simple is better. Yeah. But it's, it's so simple, but it's, it just nails it. <laughs> well, it's, look, you know, this is sometimes you get lucky. Um, very often, um, what I'll do when asked for uh, something thematic, and I clearly was on, you know, let's talk about Avengers yeah. 1. Um, very often what I'll do is I'll look for a place in the film where I can say, well, if there's any place we're going to need it, it's right here. Yeah. And as I looked through Avengers 1, uh, there was this very interesting spot. And it's this place in the midst of this crazy battle um, where all the Avengers are together um, and nobody's doing anything <laughs> because it is the iconic Marvel shot. Yeah, that sweeping kind of... Yeah, yeah. but, it, but it's, it's like a still yeah. almost, yeah. right? So yeah, the camera's moving, but the, you know, we're on a battleground. Our our folks are not moving. Yeah. <laughs> so that was interesting, and the filmmakers really wanted that because it is the iconic Avengers, shoulder to shoulder, mm -hmm. just. But they're not fighting. Yeah. They're standing. <laughs> so, I knew for that film, obviously heroic. Um, had to have that kind of simple, heroic um, aspect. There was a string motif which um, went along with that theme. And the reasoning for that was, there's a big fight going on here. <laughs> there's a lot of energy here. Yeah. Um, we can't take our foot off the pedal somehow. We have to feel like we're still generating energy. So there's this 16th note string motif that plays through this long kind of heroic yeah, big yeah, yeah. interval theme, you know. So, so again, um, it's, it's a simple tune. Yeah, but it's become, and you didn't do the second one, but they, Brian and Danny used it yeah, in the second yeah, one, yeah. and now you've come back for, you came back for Infinity War and now Endgame. Yeah. Um, those two movies, I think, were originally supposed to be one film, and then they split into two. And this final mm -hmm. piece is three hours long. It's, right. It's a mammoth undertaking. It is. How much mammoth. music did you end up doing for Endgame? We recorded over 200 minutes of music. Wow. I wrote well over that because wow. there were things that I had done that through the editorial process and all we wound up not using. Or versions of something where um, Joe and Anthony felt, nah, I think maybe the original way or this way I like better and you mm -hmm. know, not use this thematic material or 
however that worked. But we recorded 200 minutes of music and there's a lot of music in the movie and there needed to be. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting because for me, it doesn't feel like Infinity War and Endgame were one thing cut in half. They mm. really feel different. Yeah. Was, so there was no contemplating of how to structure it. You treated Infinity War as its own yeah. kind of three-act structure. Finish it and then start for, for yeah. Endgame. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean that there aren't thematic elements that, that uh, found their way into Endgame. Yeah. Um, you know, we had established something with Thanos in Infinity War that seemed to, um, to he seemed to wear well, so um, there was no reason not to have some of that sense in, uh, in Endgame. Um, there were also quite a few new, um, new things in Endgame that required new thematic material started from nothing. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there is a freshness and, and a newness to Endgame that um, is just how, how that worked out. <laughs> is it uh, difficult when you, because you have that theme now that you created um, and people are probably going to expect it. I mean, do you, is it like, was it the same as like Avengers 1 where, oh, we have a, a moment for this? Like, do you build up to it to certain moments and kind of release that theme? Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's something that we talked about, theme in general, with um, Joe and Anthony and Kevin uh, in Infinity War and, and also in Endgame. How, how we have that yeah. now. We know that. Um, how do we use it? And how do we not abuse it? Exactly, yeah. Because it's so easy to abuse it. Right. And, um, and so one of the things I think that, that the filmmakers came to early on, which was a, a very clear direction, was somehow the music is going to have to function as a unifier. Um, because of the sheer number of characters yeah. involved. Yeah. And so um, in Endgame, even more so than Infinity War, the thought of having everyone's little theme kind of appear every time they did was going to be so kind of crippling. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that, you know, we still had the, the overall view of Avengers, um, so we still had a reason to visit our Avengers thematic material. We still have Thanos, he's still the team to beat. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Um, yeah, so, so um, there are sprinklings of the Avengers motif in places, but I would say for the most part, it's very sparingly. Um, and uh, because you have to be careful. You, do, you don't want it to lose its power. Yeah, you yeah. don't want it to lose its power. And it was interesting too in the ad campaign, um, listening to trailers as they rolled out. Sometimes they'd use it, <laughs> or sometimes they'd use a phrase of it. Yeah. Sometimes they wouldn't use it at all. 
and it and it was all it always felt to me you know watching the campaign which is still not over by the way right because, you know they're opening in a couple days but i felt it was always a very conscious decision um if and when to use it and how much because it, you don't want to. You don't want to overuse it. it. It it would just be awful. Yeah. It would be like putting too much of a of a spice. Yeah. Too much salt. Too much. Yeah. Sugar, too much your, anything. Your, It'd be too much like sugar oh, in your you just killed yeah. a great meal. <laughs> yeah. You know, so fascinating. You know. It is. It's a. It's like a. It's, it's a balancing act. You yeah. Know? It's yeah. for sure. Um, when you're working on these films like on on Avengers, these are such incredible productions just in terms of action and sound effects and visual effects. Um, I know with action writing, your, 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 your music is being woven into the soundscape of the film. Do you have to kind of um, think about how sound effects are being used when you're writing? Do you like, oh, there's going to be a lot of explosions here. I need to change the way I'm writing? Is you that... always do have to consider that. Yeah. And, um, and, and great filmmakers will will prepare for that mm. and um, because there is there's an actual physical phenomenon with our ears where if they are bombarded with enough sound pressure they'll start to close down mm. um, and it's interesting, I, I, I read something many years ago about, about that. Um, it, I believe it was a book about acoustics. And the, the person writing said, here's the perfect way to experience it. Have you ever gotten into your car in the morning and started your car and your stereo in your car was like, wow, just <laughs> blew your head off. Yeah. Well, when you drove home last night, you were just grooving along and that was fine. Right. And you were like, you know, this is great. But after a night's sleep and the compression factor of your ears having a chance to calm down and not being bombarded with sound when they're sensitive mm. and fresh, that's shocking. So great filmmakers in the midst of having deliver, to deliver very intense uh, sound for long periods, will still find a way to give your ears a rest. Yeah. And so masterful sound effects uh, and sound design people understand all this. And the composer has to follow along. Um, and, and then sometimes um, filmmakers will take sound away. Yeah. And, and now this is a music moment. You'll see a character running across a battlefield and there'll be all these explosions and little by little they'll start to fade away and we're seeing them all and music will start to bleed up and it goes from one kind of event to another kind of event. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all of those things have to be considered all the time for a composer. That's um, but I, I love it when they do find that balance and they can when they let the music come in. There's something so when you shift that perspective, when you drown out the sound effects, all the kind of diegetic sounds, and just bring the music up. It 
it, it pulls you away from it a little bit and then it does it, that's where you, I think you get those big kind of emotional moments. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all a very kind of interesting equation. Yeah. It has to be balanced and mixed moment by moment. So now that Avengers is done, the end game is here. Um, what, what has been kind of uh, your, 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 some of your favorite Marvel memories or Marvel moments of working on these films in, time, in terms of like your career coming up to this point and kind of, I mean. Yeah. Well, you know, I have to say that um, probably after my four films with, with Marvel, um, the most incredible thing has been the fact that one gets to even do something like this. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the continuous thread for me in my four Marvel films is Kevin Feige. Um, I did uh, Captain America with Joe Johnson, which was great. And I did Avengers 1 with Joss Whedon, which was great. And the last two with Joe and Anthony Russo, which was great. I mean, fantastic. Um, all music lovers, yeah, music for film, and starting with Kevin Feige, he just loves film music, and he loves the power of it and what it can do in a film. So, so my my biggest impression is that, you know, we're we have this ninety-five piece orchestra. We record over two hundred minutes of orchestra music. Where on earth does a composer have the opportunity to do something like that? I know, that's amazing. And the most magnificent musicians um, alive, sitting there day after day, playing this stuff. And then it's recorded beautifully. And then it's in the movie. And it's mixed and dubbed beautifully. So... Um, I think it's one of the, it's one of the, you know, one of the keys to the Marvel DNA is that there is this appreciation for music and what it can do in their films and, uh, and they understand it and they use it in, in great ways and I think it, it helps their storytelling. Absolutely. So, so, you know. That's that's my great takeaway from ten years of being with uh, with Marvel is that they they uh, they love music. <laughs> to kind of wrap things up, we were just, you know talking about um, Marvel and everything that you kind of experienced through it. Why do you think we we're, we're seeing this kind of rise of superheroes and kind of the the superhero genre? Why do you think people love it so much? Why do people come out in droves? I mean. Avengers 3, I mean, uh, Endgame is bound, bound to break records at the box office. People right. are thirsty and hungry for this kind of right. content and to go and experience this. Why do you think we're so in love with superheroes? Well, I think, you know, look, I'm certainly no expert in <laughs> any of this. Um, in terms of just storytelling, like what, yeah, what about, I, in, you know, but, but I do have a sense of, mm -hmm. of why it may be so. Um, and let's use Marvel in, as, the, as the example. 
one of the things that I've found over my time with Marvel is they have very three-dimensional bad guys. They are based, these stories, on comic books. Mm -hmm. um, now, folks who don't understand comic books will potentially at face value go, ah, you know, it's like a little, you know, two-dimensional little, you know. But in fact, um, the way Marvel in particular treats their bad guys is anything but that. Mm -hmm. They are very complicated people, individuals. Yeah. Um, for my personal experience, I, you know, I, I, I began with Red Skull yeah. and then moved on to Thanos. Um, Red Skull, I thought was a fascinating character. And one of the fascinating things for me was um, Red Skull for me was a lover scorned. Mm -hmm. Red Skull was designed to be the ultimate gift to Hitler, the, 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 the one who could give Hitler his wildest and of course most horrific dreams, yeah. make them all come true. He was broken. Red Skull didn't quite work. And so he was cast aside by the folks who had created him. Mm. And he was heartbroken. Yeah. And that, to me, makes for a fantastic <laughs> bad guy. Because he's made to be bad, but his heart's broken. Yeah, yeah. And now we come to Thanos. Thanos is this dark monstrous, powerful thing. But Thanos thinks there's something that needs to be done in the universe, and he thinks he's the only one who has the skill set right. to do it. And that skill set isn't just physical. He thinks he has the mental skill set. He understands the problem. Mm -hmm. He understands that the universe is going to eat itself alive unless it's pared down. And he comes up with this way to do it. And as far as he's concerned, somebody's got to do this. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And so it's him. So, you know, kind of a long-winded way to get to your, your question about superhero movies. But... I think they inject a level of unreality that lets us off some kind of hook. Mm -hmm. We can, at any moment we choose, turn around to ourselves and go, ah, don't worry, it's, it's a comic book. Yeah. Ah, it's a comic book. But then what Marvel does is it creates these amazing relationships between these characters, really emotional stuff, really great stuff and they bring it to us with all this intensity knowing that at any point we can go ah, it's just a comic book yeah yeah and <laughs> so you can show tremendous emotional powerful things about good and evil about love about friendships mm -hmm. um 
stuff that would be almost too hard to take. And, and the audience always knows at any time I just have, I have a button I can push. It's just a comic book. Yeah. It's just a comic book. Yeah, and that gets me through that. Yeah. Oh, something happened. It's oh, just a comic book. And so I think it's a way, um, it's a way like the great, uh, the great Mary Poppins idea. <laughs> a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Absolutely. Well, just that little re relief valve, if you want it. I think allows Marvel to tell big stories and powerful stories, and they're universal stories. Yeah. And it's bigger than life, and okay, so it's not my neighborhood, it's bigger than life, but it is your neighborhood. Right. It is about your best friend. It is about your enemies, or th those who you perceive as different than you, and they're your enemies. It's, it's about you, yeah. and, and you had that little way out anytime it gets a little bit too too warm in the room yeah <laughs> and and i think they 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 understand that at marvel yeah and again i have to mention mr feige's name he i've seen him um through 10 years of being there yeah and 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 seen it with those who work with him um, you know, working with Joe and Anthony Russo, they, they were fearless in how they told their story. Right. They just would not take the easy way out. They made decisions that I thought were so bold. Um, and they're like, we have to do this. <laughs> we have to. Yeah. And it's fantastic, you know? Absolutely. So it's, it's alive, you know. Um, for all of its continuity and, and sensibility, it's not formulaic. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not. And anyone who thinks it is is going to be pleasantly surprised. And that's part of, I think, why the Marvel event has been so successful. After all the temptations for it to be formulaic, it's still being created by filmmakers who refuse to do that absolutely yeah it's fantastic yeah well al thank you so much for sitting down today and, and thank chatting. you it's been such a pleasure again to, to talk and discuss and everything so really thank you so well, much well it's been a pleasure for me and it's you know you know you know your subject so well <laughs> and so beautifully it's it's so relaxing and nice to just talk about this thing that we both are yeah. find ourselves in <laughs> it's great so thank you so much thank you.